This past week, I was listening to Christian radio. Now, this is not my general habit, but sometimes you get tired of sports hot takes, depressing political news, not to mention season two of Serial had yet to beam its way into my ears. That didn't happen until Thursday. I don't always not like K-Love's music. I mean, it is what it is and what it claims to be positive and encouraging. The problem was when I dialed in the song they were playing by a regular CCM artist, contemporary Christian music, by a guy who they normally play and who has typically much more worshipful and orthodox songs, the song that they were playing was Jingle Bells. Now this bothered me, not just because I'm bothered by Jingle Bells. So if you love Jingle Bells, please don't walk out of here right now. It just seemed really, well, sub-Christian for this time of the year. I mean, I'll give you a lot of grace. This is a season for mercy. I'll grant you cheesy songs like Christmas Shoes. I'll even let in some pretty awful versions of Drummer Boy. But I cannot give you Jingle bells on a station that purports to worship the infant Christ child. Not to mention with what's going on in the world and in our country to be played on a quote Christian radio. I have no beef with K-Love or with Jingle Bells in particular. I think what stopped me in my tracks was the content. You know, like it or not, there's normally a, a Jesus quota for a CCM song, we, we have some radio people in the, in the place, so maybe I'll confirm, in the, confirm or deny this later. I think it's like five Jesus mentions per minute. But I also think it's the tone that bothers me. I mean, what is this bouncy, loungy tune doing during my Advent? How can we possibly rejoice in this time of hope in this serious time of waiting? How do you do joy in a way that's not trite, it's not counterfeit? Can joy really live in a world filled with violence and terrorism, filled with hurting families and broken or breaking marriages, filled with homelessness and hunger, a world with oppression and injustice? But the great thing about Advent is that built into such a minor chord season, and I don't know a whole lot about music uh, music theory, but minor chords are, you know, those kind of sad, unresolved sounds of the blues built into a whole minor chord season where we're singing the blues, a major chord pops right up right in the midst of heart-wrenching, near desperation, is in fact joy. Right in the middle of violence is born not a triumphing warrior, but a vulnerable infant. Right where there's pitch black, and you forget for all the darkness which way is up, in which way is down? You hardly even know if you still exist. A small light flickers. That's why we light these lights. It's a light that says that the light, capital L, 
has already defeated darkness. That's why I love this Advent season and these Advent and Christmas songs. That's why we're using them to guide our devotion. Following Augustine, he says, He who sings prays twice. They give us the necessary, the necessary full palette of flavors. Maybe the, the hope anthem we sung a couple weeks ago, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, maybe that's the quintessential song for this season. Because the whole thing is minor chords until it's time for the chorus. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. The major chord gospel, good news to you, wonderful, joyous news for all people. Your Savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ, the Lord. Perhaps that tune is a microcosm of Advent as a whole. Maybe with the Psalms, it describes how we can live with our God in ordinary time, all the time. How in the midst of even these extended seasons of uncertainty or sorrow or spiritual dryness, there's people in this room that are experiencing things, maybe even the meh, eh, mehness of life, after having an initial huge encounter with God, how even then there can be joy. There can be joy that pops up even in the middle of stretches of loneliness, even in the midst of homelessness, grief, of exhaustion and fear and uncertainty and persecution. There can be joy. This is something that Christianity has known from the get-go. From a prison cell, St. Paul writes to the Philippian church, Rejoice again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul might be prone to repeating himself. But rejoice from a prison cell? That's Philippians 4.4. 4. Or maybe hundreds, more than a thousand years later from concentration camp prison, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer can say, the joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That is why it is invincible, irrefutable, invincible joy. It has come to us, this joy, because we believe that God has come to us. The Lord has come, and Watts writes so wonderfully about this. Heaven and nature sing. Every every created thing must carve out space to host its creator who has chosen to enter, to return, to heal. Our response is to receive, to prepare to grow in our ability to be hospitable because Christ has come and is coming again. It's interesting to me that God would necessarily choose to change the world through a baby. Over the last several years, I've learned this a lot. I'm still learning this, that while unassuming a baby, even your own, is one of the most all-consuming strangers you could host 
Sometimes I wonder when we forget or why we disconnect the way we're willing to completely reconfigure our lives around someone who has nothing to offer, who can't express themselves, who's fragile and poor. Why we disconnect that from doing that for others. One of the few t- this is one of the few times that we can actually act like God, giving grace without expecting to receive, saying that there's room, there's more than enough. Even if you don't have kids, think about when your one of your siblings had a kid, maybe before you. Or think about that first uh, friend from college that started having kids. Now think about the first time your family got together for a holiday or on vacation, and now all the sleeping assignments are changed, all the traditions shifted. Maybe you can't eat out like you always used to do. How much did the presence of that child mess everything up? Everyone's lives had to shift in order to make room for this new one. The old way of being a family, the old way of being friends is gone and past. The birth of Jesus begs the same response from us. A willingness to have our lives turned upside down in order to make space for God to enter in. The birth of Jesus asks us to continue in our willingness to make room for others in our lives and in our hearts, rather than holding them off defensively. The innkeeper who turns away Mary and Joseph stands as a cautionary tale to all of our own fear and insecurity, our scarcity-driven inhospitality. The tumult, the disturbance, the sheer destruction of our old own ways of being in light of Jesus' arrival aren't to be met with sorrow or grief, but with joy. Heaven and nature sing with joy because in Christ the God-man, in Christ heaven and nature are being reunited. This reunion signals God's reign. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our prayer. That kingdom bursting onto earth in a way that will echo and reach every square inch of creation. That's the crazy witness of scripture. You can tell when the prophets and psalmists in particular really have their imaginations primed for this sort of coming renewal because they speak over and over about how inanimate objects in creation, are becoming animated with their creator's presence. Isaiah speaks of rivers and mountains, (laughs) clapping hands and bowing down. Job has God speaking out of a whirlwind. Our call to worship this morning from Psalm 98 says, Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy. you got to remember that this song Joy to the World wasn't created by Isaac Watts even as a Christmas song originally. It was just his setting, his way for us to sing Psalm 98, to sing these words of renewal, to sing this new song. And then after the disciples loudly praised God for the redemption they're experiencing, God's kingdom that's unfolding before them, they're seeing healing, 
They're seeing proclamation of good news that things are different. This kingdom is coming. They're saying, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and in glory in the highest heavens. The religious leaders try to silence them only for Jesus to say, if they didn't say it, the rocks would cry out. Our poets like Gerard Manley Hopkins might say that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. Think about that image. That creation pulses with life like shaking foil on the sunlight. Our theologians even have a picture of this. I'm thinking of Augustine who says, All things proclaim him. All things speak. Their beauty is the voice by which they announce God. By which they sing, it is you who made me beautiful, not me, but you. What would it be like for us to walk around seeing sidewalks and cubicles and playgrounds and grocery store aisles vibrating with this sort of joy and life and praise? Not because they're particularly good or beautiful on their own, sometimes quite the contrary. But because Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose, and promised to return. What if we had that sort of psalmic creativity where we walked around singing these songs? That sort of theological eyes to see, that sort of joyful living. The whole creation also groans with birth pangs. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Hoping, prepared to burst in the song at any moment at its maker's arrival. What so wonderfully captures this aliveness? The joy that bursts from every corner responding to God's redemption. It's a joy we participate in as part of the community of God's creation. We learn to, we learn from nature also how to wait, how to glorify God by producing fruit. We learn how to trust in God for provision, for rain, for nourishment, for revival. We also learn from creation how to be comfortable being fallow at times. That the most helpful thing for us sometimes might be for God to let us rest in him. We learn from creation how to continually reorient ourselves to the one who made this world and who is continuing to retune our song and so that we can repeat and resound the joy of his presence by his spirit in this world he loves. There's also a great sense in which we're apart from creation. That we are the garden that God the gardener is working on. He's uprooting us from our wandering and grafting us back into his people, into his purpose. But there's also a sense that we, too, co-labor with God in keeping creation. Not just preserving creation or conserving it, but making nourishing, healing, moving towards flourishing, shalom, wholeness. This is revolutionary stuff. Jesus' coming reminds us 
enjoy this vocation. It reminds us that the Advent that we prepare for involves the reversal of a curse. And that, that curse is that we'd be constantly frustrated, that our work would be stunted, that our relationships would struggle. Consider how this curse following our ancestors in the garden has tainted everything. It causes us to seek power over others, to view our work as a necessary evil rather than a good gift and a calling. How often do you feel like you just hate your job? It's just a drain and a suck on you. And that if you could just be retired or if you could just be free from this, you'd be so much more happy. I have news for you. Adam and Eve did work before the fall. The curse is not work. The curse is unfruitful, frustrated work. Fallen work. But Jesus is coming into our world and into each and every one of our lives marks the end of that sort of tyranny. No more let sins and sorrow grow. For Jesus has become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be redeemed not just for a ticket out of here, not just for a get out of jail free card, but to be partners with God for renewal and restoration, that we might work with God. But how do we join God? How do we join with God? Sometimes I love turning to some of the speeches and acts to see just what this joyous, infectious movement of people was saying. I mean, how do you form a growing, like, bursting, happy, persecuted minority gathered around a crucified but risen Messiah? What are they telling people? What is their elevator pitch? What was someone like Peter talking about? After he healed a crippled man on the steps of the temple, after that crippled man's obscene display of joy, leaping and raving like a lunatic, how good God is, this is what Peter says. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah whom he has appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. This reversal of which Peter speaks is simple. Stop running away and start running to God. Start running with God. I imagine he gestured at the cripple that everyone had grown accustomed to begging, who is now a dancer. Talk about a change of vocation. You see, reversing the curse of sin and death is that personal. We are surely offered salvation from all the ways that sin has crippled our bodies, has crippled our hearts, has crippled our imaginations, has crippled our relationships and our neighborhoods. We're freed from the, sin, from the ways that sin enlists us, and the ways that we join with it, and it has us. 
in the ways that we do sin's bidding, we become partners with it. We become the cripplers. We do the hurting. We commit the violence. We participate in the exclusion. But joy means a reversal. Joy is found in our freedom from sin and sorrows. But joy is also found, our salvation is also about our newfound freedom for, freedom that enables us to join God in his mission to heal, to join our words with his capital W word, to join our thoughts with his thoughts, to have our vision renewed so that we see what and how he sees. We're freed from fear and lack, and we're freed for justice, for righteousness, for abundance. No more thorns doesn't mean the ground automatically yields a harvest, but it means that we're no longer working against ourselves. It means we're no longer at odds with God. Instead, we're working with God for others. Our Advent preparation then isn't idle. Our waiting is productive. It's producing something in us. Our lives are spent preparing. We're getting in reps and making real headway for Christ to come and usher in his kingdom in full. For him to have a people waiting for him, ready. And finally, joy comes in obedience. Obedience to this coming king for whom we wait. How else could we find joy in the midst of so much pain? Unless we knew we could trust God and that he is with us as we walk with him. As we walk with him even through the valley of the shadow of death. We bask in this truth in grace. We hunger and we thirst for his righteousness. Since Jesus' whole identity Emmanuel is built around being with us. I think this sort of thing has to be done with others. It's not the sort of thing you can just do in your prayer closet by yourself each morning. This is for the people of God. This is for the nations. This is good news of great joy for all people. Being so joyfully enraptured by God's reign, having the sort of trust that Christ's faithfulness provides so that joy is even possible amidst tremendous sorrow and trial, amidst the horrors of this world and the way we're daily reminded how potent sin and death are, how I'm reminded daily how potent sin and death are in my life, how they dehumanize me and how I'm only truly human in Christ. We join with each other to expect together and to bear witness to these small wonders around us, the small joys, the mercies that are new to us every morning. Joy to the world, the Lord has come and indeed is still to come. Let us wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.